We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering, and all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word Of this life, the rain, the storms, 
Good morning. Would you please stand as we read our responsive reading together? This morning we will look at Psalm uh, 34. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 569. I will begin uh, Psalm 34 with verse 1, Congregation the Even Numbers. We'll conclude together on verse 11. We'll only go halfway through this morning. All right. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and <clears throat> were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. His poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. This particular psalm, in the, the beginning of it, it's, it introduces it as a psalm of David when he feigned uh, madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Uh, you find that in, uh, I think it's Second First Samuel 21 or something, where um, David was up against his foe, the Philistines. And in order to get out of the situation, he kind of presented himself as one who was insane to be able to get out of that. And it's those kind of things where God leads you. And I think that's where David is writing this, is from his heart to see that he was in danger and that God had led him in this direction, which probably seems silly, but it, it worked. It's what God had called him to do at this time. And he, and he said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And that's what we who understand what he has done for us should be doing is praising him and thanking him and glorifying him. For it is he who rescues us when we were lost and without direction and, and not knowing who our creator really is. He called us into his fold, into his kingdom, and leads us and directs us. In verse 2 it says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. And that's one of the things that's important to understand, that those who are haughty, who are caught up in their own perspective, in their own scientific knowledge, in their own ability to decipher what's true, 
Those who are haughty do not hear the voice of the Lord. They don't recognize who their praise ought to be directed to. But those who are humble and meek, and not necessarily in the strength of the body, but in the heart, those who are willing or allowing their heart to go before God and for him to mold it and change it from one of stone to a heart of flesh, they are the ones who hear and rejoice. They are the ones who can glorify God. And they would magnify the Lord with all and exalt his name together. And you could see how David, in all the different situations that he'd been in, how God was able to rescue him from those. Kind of seems like our situation for our church and the community uh, at this time, where those who are so haughty and those who are so caught up in their own determinations will not hear the voice of the Lord. But maybe if you feign insanity, no, no, don't. That might not be the best situation. But with the humility and the meekness and the humbleness to be able to, and the strength to exalt our Lord through all things, that's what needs to come forth. That's where the gospel will be heard. In uh, um, verse seven, every time I see this verse, where it says, "The angel of the Lord." And it says here, in camps around those who fear him and rescues them. That angel of the Lord that's spoken of so often throughout the Old Testament, in my uh, determination of understanding, is that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know him by name at that time. They didn't know exactly who he was. He hadn't taken on a fleshly perspective but he did take on a manifestation that they'd be able to see and know. They call him the angel of the Lord, and he encamps around those who, who um, fear him. And fear is the beginning of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we stand before God and understanding that he controls all, he then, like Samuel, who calls out for wisdom, will give it abundantly. Throughout this whole psalm, and then we'll continue uh, next week, you can see David's position as a humble human being standing before his God and giving him the praise, allowing his God and our God to just be glorified through him, allowing his heart to melt away to be able to say, praise God for all that he has done. So that's where we can... And we can stand on that sure assurance as David did so long ago. Thank you. So I just have to consider this morning. So, so far we, we had a great time of discussion in our fellowship room, right? And then we came in here and Meredith blessed us with a song about blessings that reminds us that the blessings don't always come in the way that we would expect them nor desire them, right? A lot of times that's how God works. I don't imagine David wanted God to make him act insane, but yet that's how God was going to work through that situation. And that song reminded me of that. And I think about, you'll notice even as I move into my message this morning, we're all in one accord. It's amazing. God's sovereignty is truly amazing. Then you look at the bulletin. The bulletin is Psalm 34. It wasn't done intentionally. That's just somehow the bulletin that was picked out. Taste and see how good the Lord is, and the one who takes refuge in him is truly happy. Well, that sure sounds like the theme this morning. 
seems like we're on a similar page, everybody here, uh, talking about that, you know, sometimes it doesn't look the way that we want it to. Sometimes the way that God's working isn't the, well, most of the time, let me be clear in my life, um, most of the time God is working is not the way I would have done it. It's probably an intelligence thing somewhere down there. But, uh, you know, it's not the way I would have done it. It's not the way I would have made the situation work out. But I'll tell you what, and Aaron's known me to say this, that every time, and many of you know I say this, that every time I've seen that when it works out God's way, it's turned out more beautiful than I would have ever anticipated it to be. Despite the pain, the hurt, sometimes the frustration of it all, right? So it's not surprising that my message this morning was God's ways are not our ways. <laughs> That's literally, we're, in a, we're running with a theme here this morning. So uh, I'm kind of in awe. So, you know, I'm kind of sitting here and I'm like, man, God is good. He really is. Um, but I want to start out with something funny this morning. So I found this article on the internet, right? And it was an article about the different type of pulpits that can be found in different types of churches. I imagine some of you have visited other churches and you've seen different types of pulpits that you would look at up front. And they say that this is a, with 98% accuracy, again, I believe that was to be humorous, um, that you can determine by the type of pulpit your pastor has what kind of a pastor you have. So I want to read you what a wooden lectern would actually say about your pastor, and then don't offer answers. <laughs> a wooden lectern is for the pastor who knows good theology, but isn't too excited by it. His sermons are no frills, passionless exercises in tedium, but he ain't wrong most of the time. Theology rating, not sure we were asleep the whole sermon. See why I let off with this precedent, right? Okay, so what we've been doing is we've been going into, we've been thinking through the scriptures, and we were going to move into the book of Leviticus. However, I guess I, you might say I had a God spoke to me moment. So I said, we're going to go somewhere different this morning. We're going to take a break because I did promise that if we're going into the book of Leviticus, your bulletin will be full on the back because it's a confusing book. And I want to make sure that I send everybody home when we're reading through Leviticus with some information that you can study on your own time. This morning, I guess you can say, my goal is going to be to encourage all of us, myself and you all included, and put the word of God before us and maybe clarify some things from last night that were on my mind as I left that presentation. I do hope that when you leave here, you know, th this is the type of church that when you leave here, I don't always pray that you leave here encouraged. I want you to be encouraged, but I don't pray that that's the goal of you being here this morning. To be quite honest, I don't know that many of you, I think you probably are encouraged in your own lives, you know, the things that you're doing, you're you know, the work that you're at, your families. Um, and I imagine you do come here for encouragement, but the encouragement that we have within our fellowship, you know, the honest, authentic fellowship that we share, the, the thinking through the things of God. But for me, my heart a lot of times when we're here, gathered in this room especially, is that you leave here challenged to search, study, and prove the scriptures. That's my heart, because I believe the scriptures will lead us away from leaning upon our own understanding and looking at this world which last night, if you were there, you remember that the unfortunate part of that debate or that presentation was that Brother Don doesn't look at the world the way that God's looking at the world. Unfortunately, he's qualifying the world according to his own standard. Why are, we still, why are people still dying? Why is there still you know, mourning and crying in the world and pain? And, and then we watch the news and we, we hear stories and we, we feel devastated. And then a lot of times people, when I say that I believe we're in the new heavens and new earth, I get the strangest looks in the world as if I don't know what's going on around me. And that led me into thinking that we need to be a people that when we're encouraged by the things we see or we're discouraged by the things we see, we need to say, how do the scriptures define, not according to my own logic, how am I twisting the scriptures to define my reality, but what do the scriptures truly say about my reality? 
as Pastor Steve put before us, that again, you know, we see in the Psalms, David, one of the, my favorite things about David is we get to see how God works through David. And it's not always the way that, I mean, if we're really reading the story, it's not the way that I would have done things. And I am willing to venture to say that it's not the way you would have done things either. Majority of the time, I'm sure we could go around the room right now and I can say, where has God worked in your life that you didn't expect him to do it that way? And I imagine we would go around, perfectly I already got you thinking, you know, where has God been at work in my life that I didn't expect him to do it that way? And maybe I can challenge you even further. Where is God at work right now? What is he doing that's going to be beyond your expectation as you press in and you, you live out Second Peter 1, become more effective and fruitful in your use of the knowledge of him? But again, we must go back to the scriptures. We are not at liberty to define our reality based on our own circumstance and our own understandings. Last night proved why. Last night proved why. But again, maybe in this message, I want to press in a little bit more, and I want to show you why it's important to be defining our reality according to the scriptures and according to what the scriptures are bringing about, what God has said about our identity in him, our world, and how we are to approach the world. What I want to get you to think about first is what are some things that depress you? What are some things that cause you tears, make you feel as though, or make you feel as though you or this earth are cursed? And thus, that we are still living in an anticipation of another reality from God, because I do find myself there sometimes. I find myself hoping rather than having. And that's going to be an important part I want to kind of have us to think about this morning. We all know Glenn Hill has that message, amazing message from hoping to having. And I think about that in my own life. I mentioned it last night during the presentation, which was kind of off the cuff, but it it stuck with what we were talking about, that I truly do believe that as the people of God, we have to move from being a people of hoping to be a people of having. So that would mean that we're not always hoping for something different, but we're discerning what we have and how we should act according with what we have. I do want to remind us that the scripture says, and, and before I say that, this has been a week where that is my message. This has been a week where I've said to myself, well, don't define the world or define your community based on what depresses you. Define your community based on how God looks at this community. Don't base, this, don't base your life and your frustrations based on things that are causing you tears and then sitting there saying, why God? Why God are you doing this way? Appreciate the way he has always done things and recognize his sovereignty in it all. That was where I had to challenge myself. Because again, I can get frustrated and I can say, God, why? I actually, this, uh, to be very personal, um, the Salvation Army lady showed up here to talk to me this week. And I told her, I said, yeah, you just caught me in a moment of frustration with Jesus. You know, and, and I was. I was in a very selfish moment where I was, God, why are you doing it this way? This is not the way. You know, and I, I, I find my moments of doubt and despair where I'm saying, so you work for five years, you labor in a community, you create a precedent, and then for some reason, God allows this to happen. And some of you may be saying, what is this? Either way, it's neither here nor there. The point is, is I found myself at a point of saying, God, why are you, sovereign God, that's in charge, that's done things amazing in my life, called a gang member from nonsense to... Yeah, that's what I would call this, God sense, that's right, to this. So for me to sit there and to say, God, why are you doing this way? I felt like he was like my child, my child. It's always going to be my way. It's not according to your desires. It's not according to what doesn't frustrate you. Sorry I didn't use you as my advisor. So, uh, yeah, that was the the big message. Thank you for the comfort. Um, And then, you know, again, because then you sit there and you say, I know I find myself there where I'm like, is it me? Am I cursed? Am I the curse? Don Johnson last night, apparently he read it to us about four or five times in Revelation 21, that the curse is still here. 
I'm saying, no. No, it's not. It's really not. But again, hopefully, I, I know we understand preterism and we understand a lot of those details that we're not living in this depraved, dead reality. We're living in the body of Christ, the life that God has now provided. But unfortunately, when we define this world on our own accord, you know, we look at this world and we kind of discern it our own way. Let's be fair. We could read Revelation 21, right, and say, I don't know, there's no more curse? Well, how many, how many, what kind of people do you know? There's no more crying or mourning or tears or death. And then we look at our world. So we can understand that. But again, that's us reading a text way out of context. Not what God is saying about our world. Perfectly you're all convinced on that. This is not a cursed existence. This is a God-bathed world. Despite the ways that God does things, it is a God-bathed world. God's ways are not our ways. We see this in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. We see in Proverbs chapter 3, 5, that we are not to be a people who lean on our own understanding, meaning we are not to define reality according to our own ways. What that led the pagans to do was to say, well, we know God exists or gods exist, something bigger than us, so let's take this tree, chop it down, carve an image and worship it because that makes sense. Right? No, it don't make sense. But unfortunately, that's where defining things based on our own estimation as per the scriptures will lead us. Idolatry will lead us into defining things that will, in the long run, seem rather silly. Because I'll imagine that the Baal worshippers didn't say it was silly. They thought, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Developing Asherah poles and, and mounds to worship Baal and all these strange things. Throwing our children in the fire. So, again, that's actually interesting that I brought that up. That wasn't even in my notes. But that's a good point. That the way that the, pagan, the ancient pagan worshippers decided they were going to appease their gods because they were defining their reality based on their own circumstances was they started to throw their children in the fire. That's where defining your reality based on your own circumstances and then defining the solution based on your own circumstances or opinion leads you. Not only worshiping idols, but also doing things that are detrimental to your loved ones, to your family, to yourself. So we also see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, that we are not to be a people who walk, we are no longer to walk. In the futility of our minds, again, the, the roundabout, right? That leaning on my own understanding and just doing the roundabout. Um, that's how I felt when I was being frustrated with Jesus this week. I said, I've been here before. And, um, you know, and it reminded me that I'm not to be a person that's doing that. I'm no longer that person that questions God's sovereignty. I know that. And prayerfully, I impress that upon each and every one of us this morning. We are not to be a people that wonder, God, why are you doing it this way? No, thank God he's doing it this way because it'll, mostly, it'll definitely turn out a lot better than the way I would have planned it and it would have worked out. And it'll be much more beautiful in the end despite the frustration. So all of that said, I want to bring us into some theology. So I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 24. And my goal in bringing this up is going to, again, impress upon us that Whatever we're looking at in Scripture, obviously here we're going to talk about the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, and the new heavens and the new earth, that it must be according to his design, not our desire. Amen. The question we need to ask as we look at Isaiah chapter 24 through 28, and I'm also going to bring us into 65 and 66, is what caused them to cry? What curses did they possess that they were looking to get rid of? What reality were they expecting? And my goal is going to be to bring us into Isaiah, just kind of to run through it and to give you that sense of the way they spoke about the curse, the death, the, the sins, the, everything that was plaguing them, and what they looked to see overturned. 
And when we do that, I believe it becomes clear of what the New Testament is actually speaking about. So Isaiah chapter 24, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is on page 705. Thank you. Starting at verse 1. And again, I'm going to read through and I'm just going to make some points as we read through the text here of the things that they were upset by, they were crying about, they were stuck in, their identity that they were stuck in. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. Scattering its inhabitants is something interesting there. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, and the lender like the borrower, and the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, and the world fades away and withers, and exalted, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and a few men are left. Now, I want to just stop there and say something real quickly. Um, most of you already know this. The, Greek, the Hebrew word for world here being used is the word aretz. That word corresponds to land. The proper translation in this text would be land. Um, unfortunately, the English translators, you know, they didn't do that because if you want a qualifier for that, the same word is used for when Abraham is told to leave his land. The Hebrew word is aretz. So nobody in this room, prayerfully, uh, believes that Abraham was told to leave the planet and to go to another planet. So... Obviously, the text would mean land. He was told to leave one land, one Eretz, to go to another Eretz. The Mormons actually, unfortunately, have a strange theology on the leaving the planet and going to another planet thing. So you could see where leaning on your own understanding can come from. So bringing us back into the text here, this is talking about the land where the people of God, Isaiah is prophesying to Jerusalem, to those in the, the house of Judah, and he's promising them that their land will be despoiled. Their land will be destroyed because they, they're the only ones that have that everlasting covenant. They violated the covenant because they did not walk worthy of the covenant. They took all the curses that you read about in, if we were in step with what we were supposed to be doing this morning, the book of Leviticus, the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I'm forgetting one. Who is it? Ex- Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and... I just did it out of order. I confused myself. So, uh, so again, what we're talking about here, up to verse 6 in chapter 24, is this land that has violated the covenant and how they're going to be left desolate. And you see, a few men are left. That's what it's going to say here. Verse 7, The new wine mourns and the vine decays. All the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of the tambourine cease. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp cease. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one may enter. Perfectly, we all know what city is being talked about in the New Testament that is going back to this passage. Again, this should be reminding you of what Jesus, our Lord, said about those last days. I will tell you right now, Isaiah chapters 24 through 28, as Dr. Don K. Preston regularly cites, uh, these are the texts that Jesus most draws from when he's talking about the last days, the resurrection and those details. The Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's ultimately why I brought us to this text. Because this is what we need to be informed of if we're going to understand the New Testament last days. So again, this city seems to be very clear. The city that killed the prophets and stoned those that were sent to it. 
Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23. He identifies that city as Jerusalem. There is an outcry in the streets, verse 11, concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the minds of the earth among the people, as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. They raise their voice, they shout for joy, they cry from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Again, notice in verse 14, that's the concept here. It's not about you getting a new identity and going to die with, be with God or anything. What it's about is the majesty of the Lord, that the Lord would be glorified. What God was bringing judgment upon that old covenant system in the first century was because that system was not bringing him glory. They had invalidated the word of God by their traditions. So he brings judgment upon them to create a people that will bring him glory. A people that through fruitful praise, through Jesus Christ, can offer up the praise that God so desires. Can worship him in spirit and in truth as he so desires. That we read about there in John chapter 4. Verse 15. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear the songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me. Alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees, the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will never fall, and it will fall, never to rise again. Verses 21 through 23 give us that we see this so much in the New Testament. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in a prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed, the sun will be ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. And again, I could keep going, but my goal was to show you that even just reading one chapter, one chapter out of the Old Testament should better inform your reading of the New Testament. What Jesus is talking about, Jesus quotes these passages. He's talking about the desolation that was coming upon a city, the judgment because these men did not walk worthy of the covenant they were given. And then as you read, which I would encourage everybody to do when you go home, read the next couple chapters up to chapter 28. And then when you do that, You will be so informed, you will be more informed than most of the Christians in Christendom as to what Jesus is speaking about in the New Testament. Again, last night I made it my claim again and again that the Apostle Paul preached nothing other than what was revealed in the Law and the Prophets. One of the, again, the major text he uses is Isaiah chapters 25 through 28. And that should give us identity as to what the reality is. So when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, this is what it's speaking about. All of these details we see in Isaiah. So our reality, as we look at Revelation 21, is that this is a new heavens and a new earth. There has been a Jerusalem that has come down from God out of heaven, which is the new covenant, Galatians chapter 4. Right? That's the new covenant that gives us this new identity. And then it says that there's no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, because those were understood to be covenantal curses. They were understood, again, if you read through Isaiah's cha- Isaiah chapters 24 through 28, you'll see those covenantal curses. You'll understand. And then, of course, go back to the law, the five books of Moses, and read those, those, those laws and see the curses that would come upon the people if they did not walk worthy of that everlasting covenant. 
That's our identity. Our identity today, our, the way we should be looking at this world, is Revelation 21 through 22. That's our reality. We are the people that live in the gates, that go outside the gates, offer people that robe of righteousness so that they may come in and drink of the water of life. It's not about eternal life. You know, prayerfully, nobody was confused last night. Eternal life is not something that begins when we die. Eternal life is something that began when you, began to, when you died to yourself and you came to life in Jesus Christ. That's the death that Scripture is speaking about. That necessary, well, we were dead to ourselves, so we were dead in sin, right? We were dead and we needed life through Jesus Christ. That's the life that is being given to us through the covenant that we have with Jesus. So I guess I want to stop there for a moment, and I want to ask, are there any questions? And I will gladly turn off this uh, recording here if there are any questions in the room um, in regards to the resurrection, in regards to anything I may have said this morning. Good. Okay, so then I will conclude since there's no questions. Um, you know, last week we, we spoke about sweet-smelling sacrifices, if we were to move into our reading, which we will next week, we're going to talk about non-sweet-smelling sacrifices. Again, this is one of those areas where I wonder, what is God doing? I can understand wanting a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Ed, offer to me a bad-smelling sacrifice. just doesn't make much sense to Mike. But again, what it reminds me is that I need to go to the Scriptures with an understanding of what God is revealing in context, not my own understandings. Again, because I don't know how you could develop your own understanding of why God would want a bad-smelling sacrifice, a non-sweet-smelling sacrifice. And somebody did correct me online last week that if you offer a sacrifice, the sacrifices we read about, the first three, shouldn't it just smell like a barbecue? Okay. Um, so that was a good correction because I didn't think it would smell good. That was my, my point. But um, what we're going to move into next week is Leviticus chapters 5 and 6. And what we're going to read about there is these sin offerings, which, of course, would be a bad offering, right? It would be a bad smell in the nostrils of God. We're going to read about the unintentional sin offering and the guilt offering that God requires from his people. And as you imagine, I'll be giving us application um, as to why we don't offer up those sin offerings and how Jesus Christ fulfilled them. I want to end with a quote from Mike Bull um, in regards to the book of Leviticus. He says this, When we read the five offerings that were for individual worshipers, which it begins in Leviticus saying, If anyone, their focus is personal piety, self-government, like that of Adam, which he was expected to live in when he was in the Garden of Eden. God established the family before he established worship. However, as a sequence, these offerings also serve as a microcosm of not only the remainder of the Bible and the Torah itself, but also of Israel's entire history. So when we're looking at those feasts, that's what we're going to be pressing into, is to understand those five feasts actually categorize God's plan and Israel's history. Next week, I'll be sharing more about that. I will say, noting the quote I shared at the beginning about the wooden lectern, that I hope my teachings are never a bore, <laughs> but rather that they emphasize the hard work of putting together a coherent, contextual, and consistent narrative. To walk worthy of Titus 1.9, which reminds me as a minister that my call is to encourage the saints in sound doctrine and to rebuke those that oppose it, I truly believe that the developing of the biblical narrative to be our firmest apologetic. Amen. The biblical narrative will lead us into truth. If we pay attention, we seek consistency, we do not lean upon our own understanding, we can truly trust it will lead us away from false teaching. Again, saints, lean not upon your own understanding. It simply leads to idolatry. Rather, seek the Lord where, when, and how he may be found, and in and through his word, and remember, it's his ways, not ours. Let's pray. 
Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. This morning's message was exactly that, to challenge us to acknowledge your sovereignty. As we look back to the psalm that was mentioned earlier, reminded us of your sovereignty in the life of David. As we think back to the song of blessings, Lord, your blessings come according to your sovereignty. Remind us of that, Lord. As we go about this walk of life, remind us that your sovereignty is with us and that if we press in and we become effective and fruitful in the use of the knowledge of God, all we can expect to see is blessings. They may not be according to our own design, but they're according to your desire. So thank you, Lord. Lead us to increase our faith, Lord. Lead us to a greater faith. As we continue to lift up praises that you so desire. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.